Thank you for joining us for our Renewal City Church podcast. If you're looking for ways to get involved, join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. at the Roxy Theater in Longview. Or find us online at rcclongview.org. We hope you're blessed and that this message finds you well. This week, as I was reading through the end of John chapter 1, one of the more impactful uh, things that I saw, one of the more impactful details was this, this way that Jesus would see people, the way that he would see disciples and he would engage them. This is, a, this is the end of the first chapter is, is the story of Jesus calling his first disciples. And he, and he sees these people and he acknowledges them and he calls them into relationship. And, and there's something about that that spoke to my heart about the God who sees people, calls them, and then, and of course, because God saw them, because they were seen by their creator, their lives were never the same. And so if you've been with us the last number of weeks, you know we've been studying the book of John. Uh, chapter 1 begins with all these big ideas of who Jesus is and the, and the connection being made between this person, Jesus of Nazareth, and the eternal word of God, the one through whom, by whom, for whom everything in this world was made. Not a single thing exists that wasn't made through him. This is the claim at the beginning of John chapter 1, that, that Jesus is, is the light of God. He's the life of God. And, and that we, the disciples, or John testifying about the early followers of Jesus, we are people who have seen Jesus, and, and in seeing him, we have seen the glory of the light, you know, the eternal character of God here in human form. And then, and then the author of, of, God, of John, of the Gospel of John, quickly then transitions into this character, John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is, is a, a minister who was coming before Jesus. He was the fulfillment of some prophecies regarding the Jewish Messiah. And he really acts as sort of, in John's Gospel, he acts as, as an early witness. And here is someone who testified to who Jesus is. And so we start with the big ideas. We move to some historical context. We move to a key witness testifying to who Jesus is. And John the Baptist's uh, testimony is recorded in John chapter 1, verse 31 through 34. Uh, we went through this last week, but he's saying, this person, Jesus, is the one that my whole ministry is pointing to. John the Baptist was an influential minister and preacher out in the wilderness. People were coming out of the cities to hear what he had to say, to be baptized by him. And he says, everything I'm doing is pointing to this Jesus. He is so great. He's so incredible. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals or tie his sandals if they came untied. Um, so that all happens. And then we're going to pick up the story in John chapter 1, verse 35. Uh, John 1.35 says, the next day, I think I've got verse slides in there, if we can throw those on the screen, or I could try to do it from my phone, I suppose. Um, okay, all right, thanks. John uh, chapter 1, verse 35 says, the next day, John was there again with two of his disciples, presumably wherever he saw Jesus the day before, and said, this is the guy my whole ministry is pointing to, baptizing out, out on the Jordan. He, he, when he saw Jesus passing by, this is verse 36, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, or look, pay attention, the Lamb of God. Now, we hear Lamb of God, and if you have been a follower of Jesus for any length of time, you know Lamb of God is code for Jesus, right? 
You know that. But in John's day, when he made this statement, he's pointing to something a little bit different. Uh, Rooted in the Jewish miracle of the Passover is this idea of the Lamb of God. All throughout the Jewish sacrificial system is this idea of a lamb being a valuable sacrifice. Now, the Jewish Passover was a dinner that was celebrated every year, and the first dinner happened when they were still slaves in Egypt. God's people have been slaves in Egypt for 400 years, and God sends Moses to deliver them, to go to Pharaoh and say, set my people free, I want them to be slaves no more. And Pharaoh refuses to set them free, and so God starts to bring plagues on Egypt to demonstrate his authority, his power over Pharaoh. I'm a God who's higher than Pharaoh, to demonstrate his authority and his power over the gods of Egypt. I am a God who's not like these other deities that these other nations are worshiping. They they have a conceptualization of these Uh, supernatural beings, but I am the God who is over everything. The people, the the angels, or the lowercase gods, the gods, I am God above it all. And so the plagues are showing that. The last plague that that, uh, comes on Egypt is the plague where the lamb suddenly comes into the story. And so Pharaoh has refused to let the Israelites go again, and Moses says, now we're going to have uh, one more plague, and in this plague... God is going to, uh, to send into Egypt the destroying angel or the destroyer. And this destroying angel is going to be set loose on Egypt. And, and this destroying angel is going to kill the firstborn of everything. The livestock, the pets, and the people. If you're a firstborn, you are toast. And all the middle kids just breathe a sigh of relief. I'm the third of four, so... Firstborn, not a problem. Although I do love my older brother, so it would have been tough. Um, So the destroyers coming into Egypt, killing the firstborn of everyone. But God says to Israel, I want you to take a lamb, sacrifice that lamb, and then you're going to roast the lamb. You're going to eat it on the Passover night. But you're going to take the blood of that lamb and you're going to paint it over the doorposts of your house. And then God said, it isn't just going to be the destroyer coming through Egypt to kill the firstborn, but I myself, God, is going to come into Egypt on that night as well. And he said, I'm going to go throughout Egypt, and when I see a doorpost painted with the blood of the lamb, I am going to pass over that house, and I will prevent the destroyer from going into it and killing the people. That word that the Jewish word or the Hebrew word that we translate Passover when God said, I'll pass over that house, it it paints a word picture of a bird guarding its nest. This is our Mother's Day connection, right? A mother bird guarding the nest. Now, if you've ever been dive bombed by a bird guarding the nest, maybe you're starting to key into this Hebrew word picture a little bit, right? So God says, I'm going to pass over, I'm going to hover over this house And if the destroyer comes near to kill my children inside, I am going to prevent that destroyer from coming near. The lamb, the blood of a lamb on the doorway is what opens the door for God's presence to dwell there and defend the people from what's inside. I'm reminded of Jesus uh, saying when when he went into Jerusalem, talking about 
His, he, 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 uh, speaking of Jerusalem, at one point in his ministry, he's saying, I longed to gather you under my wing like a hen guards her chicks, gathers her chicks, but you weren't willing. And it's kind of tapping into that mother heart of God. I mean, there's a reason that if, if uh, that the concept of a mama bear is out there, right? I mean, if you're in the woods and you see bear cubs, no, no wise person thinks for a moment, oh, how cute. They think, oh, darn it, where's the mom at, right? And they don't think, where's Papa Bear at? Because Papa Bear's probably out eating huckleberries and scratching his back on a tree. He doesn't care. But Mama Bear will kill you if she sees you near the cubs. And that is the picture of this God. Defending the nest, like a bird defending its nest, like a mother hen gathering the chicks, protecting them. That is the spirit of God for his people. He's like, He's like a mama bear or a mama bird. I love this picture. I, I mean, you have this idea of this spiritual being, this destroying angel who's hell-bent on death and destruction. And, and presumably always out there. I mean, one of the greatest tragedies of modern spirituality is that we live in denial about the fact that there are evil spiritual beings, powers, and principalities out there. The worldview of Scripture assumes that somewhere out there is a destroying angel. How sad is it that the only people who get on board with that viewpoint are the Marvel Comics people, right? The destroyer. Evil's out there prowling. And God, in a moment of judgment, lifts his protection from the land of Egypt. And it's like he says to the destroyer, you know what? Go crazy. Do what you're always trying to do. I am no longer going to intervene and protect them. But as he lifts his hand from Egypt, he also comes down over the homes of Israel in a special and unique way. Because of the blood painted over the doorposts, the door is open for him to come down in a special and unique way and defend his people from this evil being. I love that picture. And John the Baptist is saying of Jesus, Jesus is the Lamb of God. There's something about this Messiah character, there's something about this Jesus who's coming along that is like the blood of the lamb, is like the sacrifice. In the same way that that blood made it possible for God to come and defend his people, this Jesus is coming, and in a special way, he's going to open the door for God to defend his people similarly. John says this of Jesus, Behold, it's the lamb of God. He's the one who's opening the door. And two of his disciples, in verse 37, two of John's disciples heard this, and they followed Jesus. This moment might be lost on us because we don't really have disciples nowadays. But here's two men who had committed their lives to following John, living under his teaching. And John points to Jesus and they leave John and they join him. This was a significant moment, a significant change. We'll be talking more about John the Baptist in a a couple of weeks. But what an amazing thing, this man knowing his place and having his ministry be all about pointing to Jesus, even if that means that people are going to leave his ministry. I have no doubt that John's ego was somewhat assaulted by his disciples leaving. And yet he sees who Jesus really is. And if people are going to leave him to follow Jesus, then please go. Please go and follow. Verse 38, turning around, Jesus sees the men following him, and he asks, what do you want? So they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, Where are you staying? So he says to them, come 
and you will see. So they went, they saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. And this all happened at about four in the afternoon or the 10th hour, depending on your translation. So Jesus sees these men following him. They've left John. He's just walking down the road. John's saying stuff about him. The men are following him, and he, and he turns and he says, what, what do you guys want? I think it's interesting they say, we want to see where you're staying. They don't say, hey, throw out a few good teachings for us to take some notes and then go back to John because that's where we're committed to being. They say, we want to know where you're staying. We want to, we want to go where you're staying. Can we just come along? Can we just? It's like saying, can we follow you to your house? Can we go home with you? Now, these are possibly two people who just met him. I mean, if you were walking down the street and some people came up to you and asked if they could come home with you, you probably would say no, right? But God's not like us. Jesus isn't like us. He says, yeah, come and see. They show up. John mentions this all happened about the 10th hour of the day. The point in that is that it's getting on until evening. And even though it's late in the day, these men come and they end up spending the day with Jesus. Some commentators believe that means they spent the whole night listening to his teaching. There are people who are hungry for the things of God. They show up, they stay all night with the teacher, and the next morning they get up, and Andrew, who is Simon Peter's brother, this is verse 40, Andrew's one of these men, he's one of the people who was one of John's disciples. He'd followed Jesus, he'd listened to his teaching now for the rest of that day, maybe into the night. And the first thing he does, verse 41, the first thing he did is find his brother Simon. And then he tells him, we have found the Messiah, that's the Christ. Verse 42, and Andrew brought Peter to Jesus. And Jesus looked at Peter and said, or Simon, looked at Simon and said, you are Simon, son of John, but you are going to be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. Jesus looks at this man, Peter, who maybe he's meeting for the first time here, or maybe they had interactions before, but he looks at him and he says, your name is Simon, which means a reed. Uh, You're you're Simon, you're like a, a bendy, flip-floppy reed, but you are going to be Peter, which means a rock. And I think in some ways, Jesus is pointing out through the significance of renaming Simon, that Simon is never going to be the same after he has an encounter with Jesus. Jesus is claiming to Simon in that moment, hey, you are going to be forever changed if you'll come and walk with me. This is a significant claim. This is, this is life-changing type stuff. And I think so often when we are attempting to, uh, to follow Jesus ourselves or to sell Jesus in a culture that likes to do what we want to do, a little bit of, and I'm sure it's unintentional, but a little bit of messaging gets in there that just follow Jesus, it'll be great, you won't have to do anything you don't want to do, and you can stay the same. You don't have to change. Especially if people don't want to change, we don't want to give them the bad news, right? Like, hey, Jesus said if anyone's going to follow him, they have to take up their cross and die. You know, that's usually not the first line at an evangelistic meeting. Uh, This is going to cost you everything. You no longer get to decide what's right or wrong for you. You have a master. You have a teacher. You have one who you're to 
I can't even say it. You have one who you're supposed to submit to, lay your life down to. You'll never be the same. I don't know about you guys, but I don't ever want to be the same. I want to be changed by Jesus. And I really believe that he's calling us to be a spiritual community who has changed so significantly that our names are changed. We're just going to start renaming people next week. Show up, you get your new name. No, not really. (laughs) Um, But this was part of the significance of names back in that day, was that names were meant to be tied to your identity. And so if your identity was going to change, your name changed as well. And so we see that throughout the New Testament, people being named different things. Uh, It was beneficial in that day too because uh, people spoke multiple languages and so your name was different depending on which language it was in. And so they were just better uh, conditioned to have changing names all the time. So give yourselves a break if you don't ever change your name. Uh, Verse 43, the next day, Jesus decided to leave Galilee, and he went and found Philip. Which, there's not much there, but don't you love the idea of Jesus going to find someone? And I don't know what that looks like, but I imagine him walking through town, maybe Andrew and Peter are following him, and they're like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm looking for someone. Who are you looking for? I know when I see them. I'll know when I see them. And he finds Philip, and he says to Philip, come and follow me. And Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida, and he goes and follows him as well. So now Jesus has picked up Andrew. He's picked up Andrew's friend, whoever that other disciple that was following John was. I'm sure some scholars have figured it out. They could tell you. Um, I didn't have time to figure it out this week. Uh, he's picked up Simon, and, uh, and, and he's invited this guy Philip to come and, and follow him. And Philip, verse 45, the first thing Philip does, he runs and finds Nathanael. And he tells Nathanael, we have found the one that Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote. I mean, he says, this one is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Uh, he comes to Nathanael, he says, we've found the one. And I imagine that in that moment, these two Jewish men didn't have to explain to each other who the one was that they're talking about. I mean, this is the one the prophets are talking about. The prophets, that's a lot of words. Which one of the ones they talked about? No, this is the one. This is the one that Moses talked about. Which one was Moses talking about? He talked about a lot of people. No, this is the one. He is a big deal. And this one, the one we've been waiting for for hundreds of years, the one who's going to save us, this one is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel's like, oh, that's amazing. I want to follow him too. Is that what he says? Anyone know the story? No. He gives the famous line, verse 46, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? And you're thinking, well, that's a little rude, Nathaniel. How dare you say such a thing about Nazareth? The thing about Nazareth is that it's a little backwards town in the middle of nowhere. It's not known as a particularly dedicated Jewish city. It's not known as a place of prominence. And we are talking about the one. We're talking about the most important person in this entire society's history. And I think it's totally acceptable that Nathaniel's like, that one is coming from Nazareth? 
That doesn't make any sense to me. It's sort of like, you know, a celebrity being from Longview. You know, it's like, come on, nobody from, from Longview, what are you talking about? Kelso, on the other hand, totally understandable, right? Um, anyhow, uh, so uh, Andrew's claim, or Philip's claim to Nathaniel is met with skepticism. He's not so sure about it. Philip says to Nathaniel, well, come and see. Just come and see, which is a good answer. I mean, it's a, it's a great answer. I'd, I could spend my time trying to convince you he's the one. I could talk about maybe, maybe he spent the night listening to Jesus' teaching too. Maybe, maybe, you know, he saw something in him or maybe Jesus' eyes glowed. I don't know. You know, but instead of saying, trying to convince him, he just said, you know what? Just come with me. Come and see what's here. The other thing I love about this, it's a little bit like what Jesus says to Andrew and the other disciple, right? Like, what do you want? We want to see where you are. Well, come. Come and you'll see it. Just come and be a part of it. It's so, uh, it's so relational. It's, and I think this is a great uh, picture of what sharing Jesus should look like. It should be a little bit more of a come and see type thing. Uh, there's been plenty of people who complain about the way that modern marketing kind of leaks into our proclamation of the Christian message. And if we were to talk about that a little bit, I know for me, a lot of the evangelism that I've seen in the church, it lines up a lot more with like a, a good sales pitch of like, these are the 50 reasons you should do this, or these are the 50 reasons you'll be sorry if you don't do this. Um, I think this whole like come and see thing is a little bit more of like a try before you buy, right? Like, here, I'm just going to give this to you. Try it out for a month, and if you like it, let's stick with it. Just come and see it. I'm not going to try to list the reasons you should or you shouldn't do it. I'm going to invite you along the walk with me and see what I see and see if your life isn't changed by it. Anyhow, when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, this is verse 47, he says to Nathanael, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael says, how do you know me? <laughs> Tempted to see a little bit of pride here in Nathanael, right? I mean, this would be like somebody you've never met walks up to you and says, here's the most beautiful man in all of Callitz County. And I say, why, yes, yes, I am. Thank you. What is Jesus saying to him? Jesus is trying to get his attention. And maybe the only way to get Nathanael's attention in that moment is to flatter him a little bit. Nathaniel says, how do you know me? This is crazy. Yeah, I'm an Israelite in whom there is no deceit, no guile. I am the perfect Israelite. Jesus answers him and he says to him, this is the second half of verse 48, he says, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip came and called you. Verse 49, then Nathaniel declares, Rabbi or teacher, you are the Son of God. Now, I remember reading this line you know, probably for the first time at some point when I was growing up, and I have wondered for, you know, 30 years, I have wondered, what in the world was Nathaniel doing under that tree? And how was the fact that Jesus saw him there lead him to go from, can anything good come from Nazareth? And Jesus says, I saw you under the tree. And he's like, okay, you totally are that guy that Philip said you are. I believe that you are the one. You're the most important person in all of my people's history. This statement changed everything for him. One of the cool things about the Chosen series 
uh, was in season two, they had this great take on what Nathaniel might have been doing under the tree. And it's, you know, it's, it's extra biblical. It's not necessarily what had to happen. But this scene depicts Nathaniel sitting under the tree. Uh, he's been faced with some professional failures. He's feeling hopeless and helpless. He's feeling alone and terribly let down by God. And maybe you can relate to this where you feel like, man, I, I feel like, I mean, I wouldn't say I'm an Israelite in whom there's no deceit, but I feel like I'm a decent person. I feel like I do my best to follow the Lord. And then I feel like he has epically let me down in this moment. And that was Nathaniel under the tree in the Chosen series. And when he meets Jesus for the first time, in that, in that moment under the tree, he would cried out to God, Lord, you've left me alone. You've abandoned me. What, what am I supposed to do kind of a moment? I'm sure none of us have ever had moments like that with the Lord. And when he meets Jesus, Jesus references that moment in his life. He says, I saw you in your moment of desperation. When you wondered if you were alone, when you wondered if I cared about everything you feel like you've done, when you wondered if you had any hope or any chance at anything, I saw you in that moment. And the way the narrative arc goes of that episode, it's sort of like, and that's why I'm here now calling you, because I am your sign that God really loves you and really cares about you. A moment when Nathaniel was seen by the only one who matters. I probably shouldn't do this because I'm running a little short on time, but one of my favorite stories in all of Scripture is the story of uh, the first time that a human being dared to give God a name in Scripture. Uh, this is in Genesis 16. It's, it's dealing with the story of Abraham, and he has a wife, Sarah, and Abraham's walked with God for some time, and God has promised him that he's going to give Abraham a son, and things just aren't working out. You've got this old, barren couple. And so Sarah says to Abraham, I, why don't you take my slave, Hagar, and make a baby with her, and then we'll raise that child as your son. And so Abraham does this, uh, and the moment that Hagar gets pregnant, Sarah is, is provoked to jealousy. All she can see is, is envy. All she can see is envy. She looks at Hagar. Hagar's having her husband's baby, and she's understandably jealous. And so she's pretty upset about this, even though it was her idea. And she goes to Abraham, and she's like, I can't stand this woman. And Abraham says to Sarah, Go ahead and do with Hagar whatever you want. She's your slave. She's a nobody. Do whatever you want. And I've wondered at times, I wonder if Hagar was in any way in on that conversation. And what did it do to her soul in that moment when the man whose baby she's carrying says, she's nothing to me. You're upset with her. Go ahead. Mistreat her. Do whatever you want. And so Sarah begins to, the scriptures say, mistreat Hagar. She was abusing her, probably beating her, probably being incredibly verbally abusive as well. And Hagar can't take it anymore. And so this, this poor pregnant woman goes out into the desert alone to try to figure life out. She flees her, her master and she goes out into the desert. And in that, out in the desert, the angel of the Lord comes and finds her. And this angel, who we believe is, is a manifestation of God, comes and finds her and says to her, where are you going? She says, I'm running away 
from, you know, my master Sarah. I, I'm running away. And the angel of the Lord says to her, no, I want you to go back because I have a plan for your life too. I have a plan for your son. I'm going to multiply his descendants. He's going to have more children than you could ever count. Which is, I mean, in that day, for those, there's no better blessing for you than to know that you would have descendants more than you could ever count. And so here's Hagar in a moment where she might be despised by Sarah, and she might be invisible and forgotten by Abraham. But in this moment, she has an encounter with the living God And he sees her and he cares. And so in Genesis 16, verse 13, it says, She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. She said, You are the God who sees me. And then this spring where out in the wilderness where they met, this spring was was named Be'er Laharoi, which means the spring of the living one who sees me. Imagine what that did to Hagar's worldview when she suddenly realized that the living one, the God of all creation, saw her and cared. Imagine what it did for Nathaniel in that moment, when he realizes, in my darkest moment, the Lord saw me and he cared. And now here he is in front of me, inviting me to be his disciple. So he says, you are, you're the Holy One. Jesus, you are everything that we've been waiting for the most important person in our people's history. Jesus says to him, well, you believe because I told you that I saw you under the fig tree, but you are going to see even greater things than that. He adds, very truly, I tell you that you, and in this moment, the language switches to, to plural, so we, we can presume the other disciples were there as well. He says, and he says, I'm telling you all, truly, you all are going to see heaven open, and you're going to see the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man, upon myself. Now, I know as I said that, each of your minds was blown, even more than it was earlier, because you're like, this is incredible. Angels of God ascending and descending, we know exactly what he's talking about, right? Right. We're talking about Jacob. We're talking about Jacob's ladder. Jacob, one of the other Jewish patriarchs. Remember, John's writing this gospel to Jews, so they are catching this stuff. Maybe you didn't. If you didn't, uh, go ahead and raise your hand if you didn't connect Jacob's ladder to angels descending and ascending right away. Right away. Okay, yeah, so you're in good company. Remember, we got to read this like, like we're living there, right? Like this is our people. In Genesis 28, there's a story of Jacob's ladder. And, and part of the story that's told in Genesis is, is humanity falls from God, and so we're trying to figure out how do we get back to the garden? How do we get back to the presence of God? We've, we've, been, we've fallen from grace, we've sinned, we've been kicked out of the presence of God, and how do we get back? Is there a way back to what we once had? Is there a way to go from this fallen earth back to our heavenly home? And one night, this man, uh, Jacob, who's the patriarch of the tribes of Israel, he's the father of the 12 tribes, he gets renamed Israel himself. One night, he has a dream where there's this ladder that he sees, and he sees the the presence of God and and a ladder going up from earth to heaven, and then he sees angels ascending and descending on the ladder. And I think in many ways God gave that picture to Jacob so that he could tell the story to his family, so that in a fallen and a broken world there would be a preserved hope that, yes, 
There is a way. There's a ladder. There's, there's a way back somewhere. I mean, it's not open. We can't figure out how to climb it. But we know that somewhere there, there's an open way back to heaven. Heaven can come down to earth. Earth can be restored to heaven. Somewhere there's a hope for this. And at the end of John chapter 1, Jesus, in his own words, the one who started the chapter as the word of God, the one who creates everything, in his own words, Jesus also connects himself to this idea of a way back to connection with God. To Nathaniel and to the people who were around him, to the Israelites who knew the story of Jacob's ladder, who were Israel's own children, own descendants, he's saying to them, remember that ladder. Remember the angels ascending, descending. Remember that vision of open heaven and interaction happening back and forth. And he says, you are going to see the angels ascending and descending, not on a ladder, but on the Son of Man, on myself. I think in that moment, what Jesus is doing is painting a picture where he's taken the concept of a ladder where we can climb up and down accessibility from heaven to earth and earth to heaven. And he's saying, I am the ladder. I am the way. I'm the one on whom the angels can ascend and descend. I'm the one connecting it all and bringing everything back together. I apologize. We don't really have time for discussion today. Um, but as we move to communion, this is, this is where it all kind of comes together, at the Lord's table. Because who was it who opened up the way for the presence of God to come and defend his people? It was the sacrificial lamb, right? And who does John the Baptist say Jesus is? He is the sacrificial lamb. And this sacrificial lamb has has made an opportunity for God's presence to be restored and encircling around and defending his people. And this sacrificial lamb is also the ladder that restores the communion between heaven and earth. And so on the night that Jesus was betrayed, it was the Sabbath feast, or sorry, not the Sabbath, it was the Passover feast tonight. And this was an important thing too because it... it <laughs> um, because God's working really hard to make sure that all the elements of the story are connected to each other and that we can see the big picture of what's going on. And so on the Passover night, Jesus sat with his disciples and he took the bread and he broke it and he said, this bread is my body that's broken for you. This sacrifice that he knew he was about to go and offer up, his body broken on a cross, was taking the place of these rituals and these things that they'd been observing since the Passover had first happened. And then after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the blood of a covenant, a new covenant that God is establishing between, God, between himself and humanity. And the old covenant started and was based on the miracle of this Passover, of God coming to defend his people from the evil in the world, save their the lives of their firstborn and deliver them from slavery. And he says this new covenant is now an, a fulfillment of everything that that was pointing to, of God coming into our world and hovering and protecting us and delivering us from slavery to evil and from the power of death. 
And in that moment, Jesus came and he changed everything. And all of humanity is never supposed to be the same. And so as we return to just a time of worship, I just want to invite you to, uh, to as Christ's followers have been doing for generations, to share the bread and the cup in recognition of what Christ has done, in remembrance of his sacrifice, and in a proclamation that the way is restored, that the doorway to heaven is open. And, and, and ultimately, God is restoring and reconciling to himself all things in heaven and on earth through Jesus Christ or in Jesus Christ, as the Apostle Paul says. And so, Lord, we just thank you that you see us in our fallenness and you were not content to leave us there. We thank you that there is not a single one of us who escapes your eye. And we thank you that there is not a single moment in any of our lives that has escaped your notice. Lord, you have seen us in our deepest moment of shame. You've seen us in our most desperate moment of pain. And even in those moments, you've called us son or you've called us daughter. Even in those moments, I believe your spirit would encourage us to lift our eyes. To see the one upon whom the angels of God are ascending and descending. To see the one who has opened the door. To have hope that restoration is possible. Lord, move in our hearts today. Draw us closer to a connection with those truths and those realities. Draw us closer to that moment that John proclaims in Revelation when he says, you say that you will give us a new name. Lord, I want my new name. Give us our new name. Remake us. Reshape us. We want to be more like you. We thank you for your grace and your goodness. We thank you for the table that's been set with good food. And and we just pray your kingdom come and your will be done. In Jesus' name.